Hey there, podcast listener. If this is your first time here, welcome to the Eat Half, Walk Double podcast, coming to you from the Ascend Endurance Coaching Studios here in beautiful Stratford, New Hampshire, US of A. I'm your host, Chris Dunn. If you've listened to the show before, well, hey, welcome back. So this show chronicles my four decades in endurance sports as a coach, race director, and athlete, told through the stories of the important, influential, and interesting people I've met along the way. While I catch up with friends, colleagues, rivals, clients, and the occasional family member, it's my hope you'll learn a little something about health, fitness, and the secrets to living well along the way. The newly crowned Miss Maryland Bethany Rice joins the show this week. Not only is she the queen of the old line state, but she's also an accomplished endurance athlete, author, and the founder of a nonprofit organization created to promote and support literacy. In fact, her platform and community outreach revolves around literacy, which has been the focus of her professional career. Well, here she is, Bethany Rice. Bethany, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So, hey, what what's going on? I haven't I haven't seen you in a while. I know so much is going on. Oh my goodness, it has been a whirlwind uh, last six weeks. So, well, good good segue, uh, good segue there. Um, let's talk about let's talk about the last six weeks. So, uh, on October eleventh, mm-hmm. uh, you were crowned. United States of America, mm-hmm. Miss Maryland. Correct. What was that like? It was honestly something I probably will never forget. Um, to be honest with you, it is a goal that I ha- probably have been working towards since I was 10, in some way, shape, or form across those years. And so it it really was just the culmination of a, a lot of hard work. And I will tell you, um, I was shocked uh, standing up there and you know hearing your name called after putting in all of that work. There's there's nothing like it, and you know the women that I was standing next to were probably some of the most elite, um, smart, talented professionals that uh, the District of Columbia, Maryland, Virginia area could find. So that was a tremendous honor. So, um, I mean, you, you mentioned that this has sort of been a lifelong dream, right? Something mm-hmm. that, something that maybe not, you haven't been specifically pursuing since the age of 10, but, right. but, but, but something that you've been thinking about, um, well, pageants are not something new for you, right? I mean, you've, you, you have a history of doing them. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, what, what that history is that you have with pageants? Sure. So when I was younger, um, around the age of 10, actually, I was sort of typical, your your typical girly girl, if you will. I really loved singing and dancing and was introduced to the idea of a pageant. And I had never competed in one. And my mother uh, reluctantly agreed to to do it. And I'll tell you, I showed up to that first event. There were probably 350 plus other girls my age, all competing for the same title. And 
I had no idea what I was in for. Um, and so it was a learning experience. And, you know, I was a pretty shy 10 year old at the time. And so I really had, uh, I got an education in um, public speaking, in being a little bit more confident in who I was. And I learned a lot in that first experience. And I gave it a couple tries as a young person uh, and then kind of put it away for a little while and eventually came back to it when I was in high school and was really looking to meet new people to you know build my community service resume a little bit more and you know i had kind of continued that dance element as well as has gotten into some other sports as but you know that that dance was was central and so got back into it and then from there what i realized was the pageant world for women was one of the most scholarship biggest scholarship opportunities. So I competed in college in the Miss America system, which is the number one scholarship organization for college age women and did pretty well, never won, um, but did get uh, some significant scholarships, which helped pay for my master's, um, which was incredible. Uh, so it kind of evolved from that place of you know, wanting to build my confidence, wanted to learn those public speaking skills, you know, be able to highlight and showcase my my dancing and my singing, and then, you know, for a purpose. So, you know, leading me into the the college and graduate years and and using that as a way to to pay for school and um and to really make some professional connections too. So so now for you uh, as an established professional in your field, by the way, mm -hmm. what, what, what do you do professionally? So I am a professor in the School of Education at Towson University, and I teach both the graduate and undergraduate level classes. Okay. So your, you know, your, what I find interesting is that um, it, it seems to me that your reason, your why for participating in pageants really has evolved for you, you know, mm -hmm. from, from the time that you were little, uh, through high school and then through, through secondary education. Uh, and now here you are as a, as an established mm -hmm. adult, the scholarship, well, the self-confidence thing perhaps is, is, is still an important, still an important element to it, but the scholarship part is not necessarily a thing anymore. Again, you're, right. you're, you're an established professional. Um, so, why get back into pageants now as a as an established professional in your field? Uh, what why return back to pageants now? Such a good question. Um, and I would say, you know, I've done it a couple times now um, as an adult. Um, the first time was uh, after my mom and I uh, were hit by a drunk driver uh, head on in a collision. And it was a pretty. Um, life-altering accident. And, you know, I, I found myself in this spot where I was really kind of in that poor me mindset and feeling really bad for myself. And, you know, just in this space um, that was very negative. And pageants were actually one of the things that helped me lift myself out of that space. Um, because, 
a lot of the the programs and a lot of people don't realize are very driven by community service. And so what I very quickly realized um, in that moment of recovery from this accident and feeling very sorry for myself was that um, I had gotten away from that aspect of community service. And I had gotten away from the work that I was you know, accustomed to doing. And so at that point in time, um, when I when I joined a, a pageant competition, it it really kind of rustled me out of a of a negative mindset, and I was able to really shift that and put it into something a lot more positive. And at the time, um, I was really advocating for um, awareness of drunk driving. I you know became a volunteer EMT for four years and served on two different departments. And so it really got me out of a out of a bad mental mind space. And so that was sort of the first, you know, iteration. And and most recently, I would say this time around, um, you know, I was coming off a, a sort of a less than stellar um, performance in a marathon and um, was feeling again a little bit down on myself. I've you know been battling some some heart issues after um, having COVID this fall and just not getting or excuse me last spring and just not getting any answers and having to sort of adapt um, the things that I want to do and not feeling very successful. And this summer just kind of really got myself in a, in a bit of a funk. And um, again, found myself in that like, oh, woe is me space. Um, and I kept seeing all of these women in my area, like doing these incredible things in the community. And I thought, wow, okay, you know, here are these people that are doing these these great projects, all of this amazing work. Um, and I'm over here sitting here kind of, you know, lamenting the fact that I, I can't run fast anymore. Um, and I realized that that was really silly. And um, so I started thinking about, well, what could I do? And, you know, that was kind of uh, what led me to, to initially join uh, the pageant, which then sort of sparked a number of other things that have since evolved in terms of community service projects. So it's really been about, you know, a personal why as an adult. Well, I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's one other element to that, uh, this most recent story for you that, that you didn't mention, but I, and I wonder, I wonder how much of a contributing factor it was. Um, uh, and that is this, I mean, significant life transition. I mean, you, you, mm -hmm. you moved to Maryland, you moved from, uh, New Hampshire to Maryland. You, you changed mm -hmm. career, not changed careers. You, you, you took a new job and mm -hmm. you moved to a new place, um, during this time. I mean, just, just like just prior to the pageant. Um, mm -hmm. so how much of, how much of that big, those two big life transitions played into your inspiration to get back into pageants? Absolutely. Um, I mean, certainly that was, that was a huge part of it, you know, making a move like that. Um, you know, I moved in 2021 and it was in the middle of the pandemic and, you know, um, taking this new job. And while that has been incredible, you know, it comes with a lot of, um, unique challenges, you know, meeting a whole host of, you know, new colleagues and trying to make new friendships and learning the area and, you know, trying to figure out, um, 
you know, who, who are your people? And so uh, that certainly has, has been a challenge. And then, you know, having a significant illness by, you know, by yourself and working through that. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to have um, a couple of good friends help me through that. Um, but, but it, it wasn't easy. And so, you know, being somewhere relatively still new, um, like a, a little over a year in, um, you know, certainly that was a motivating factor um, because as soon as I joined the pageant and, um, you know, got my local title and was preparing to compete at States, you start to meet all of these other people who are competing and um, also doing work. And, you know, it's interesting because I think oftentimes people think of pageants and they think mean girls. Um, and to an extent, you know, if, if, you know, you look hard enough, you find those um, in some systems. But I will tell you, um, I have become really good friends with most of the women that I competed with. And those that I haven't, um, I just didn't get to know as well during the, the pageant weekend. And so, um, you know, that has been a huge value add to my life because my social circle, ex, you know, expanded exponentially um, after that piece. So that mm. that was a major part of it for me. Well, I think, you know, you, you and I had also talked too that, um, you know, you you had to purposely put yourself out there. I mean, you you joined mm -hmm. a local running group, which we'll we'll talk more about in, yes. in, in a little bit. But um, like that, that took some effort to, mm -hmm. you know, to um to to sort of release yourself from this sort of self-imposed isolation not mm -hmm. not pandemic related isolation just being in a new place trying to well sort of you know learning a new job and 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 mm -hmm. uh, learning how to navigate uh that learning a new area and how to navigate yeah. that area thank um, god and, for google <laughs> yeah right for sure and then and then and then building uh, finding your tribe as you talked yes. about so I, I know that you did that uh, on the running side of things, and mm -hmm. we'll talk more about that in a moment. It, interesting to me to hear that um, that on the that, that that your connection to the pageant system locally um, also helped you to build connections mm -hmm. and relationships, and sort of kind of force you outside of your bubble, uh, mm -hmm. right? For for, for 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 and for most of us, particularly during the pandemic, the the bubble is the the four walls that we okay. that we live in, right? And that it's a it, you you can you can very easily kind of fall into the uh, sort of uh, ho hum routine of kind of mm -hmm. you know getting up, going to work, coming home going to bed, getting up, going to work, coming home, going to bed. Next thing you know, you, right. You haven't, you haven't sort of gotten out of that, um, uh, out of that routine for a while. And, and, uh, the, the, the sense of isolation begins to really creep in. I mean, of course the pandemic has certainly mm -hmm. has contributed to that, but then sort of post pandemic, I think, um, I think, I think for many people, it's been difficult for them to kind of break out of that pandemic related isolation feeling. And mm -hmm. so you really kind of had to put yourself out there. I mean, you, you obviously put yourself out there, um, on the, on the running side in terms of getting connected to a local running group, but you, you definitely put yourself out there, uh, by getting connected to the pageant system. You talked a little bit, mm -hmm. you mentioned, um, <clears throat> uh, mean girls and, and that mm -hmm. is that being one of the sort of misconceptions about, about pageants. Um, but you know, from, as an insider, sure. um, what other misconceptions do you suppose people have about pageants? I mean, I, we talked uh, a bit about it in the pre-show, but yes. um, cause you know, when I, when I think of pageants, 
-hmm. it's probably not what you as a participant think of, of pageants. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, unfortunately many, many years ago, for instance, with the, you know, with the John Benet Ramsey situation, um, Mm -hmm. not that that was necessarily related to pageants, but the fact that, you know, the fact that, that a lot of the publicity around that was about John Bonet yeah. and her in her pageant mm-hmm. co- costumes or and 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 about her you know her her mother being a pageant mom and anyway right. it didn't really have anything to do with the story but just I mean my recollection is that that was it, that story was somehow related mm-hmm. to pageants even though it had nothing to do with pageants right um, so again as an insider mm-hmm. what what do you think are the are, are some of the most common misconceptions that outsiders have about pageants? Oh, there's so much judgment. Um, You know, that's one of the things that I think is really unfortunate is um, people hear, you know, that you do pageants and and they automatically assume that you're that stereotypical, um, you know, I I hate to say this, but blonde bimbo type figure that, you know, looks good in a swimsuit, but has nothing going on, you know, in their, in their mental side of things. And they sort of make judgments that, you know, pageant girls aren't smart or that they're, um, high maintenance, catty. I mean, I've heard so many different things from people. And again, like I think with anything in life, um, you know, there's certainly a a range of experiences that you can have. And um, for me, when I select, you know, a system to compete in, um, you know, I definitely look at those aspects. Um, You know, I always competed in the Miss America system because I knew it was scholarship based and you had to have a strong platform issue. You had to be able to speak you know, eloquently, not only in front of a panel of judges, but also impromptu on stage, you had to have a talent that you you put forth and so forth. And so um, I tend to look for systems that are very based in community service that value women who are, you know, uh, leaders in their careers, in their lives. Um, But there are some programs out there that don't do that. And, you know, unfortunately, I think that's where some of the JonBenet Ramsey stereotypes come from. It's, you know, or the, you know, I I forget the other one that was on, um, you know, reality TV for a while. But um, it's it's unfortunate because those negative pieces overshadow um, the really positive side of things that I think a lot of people don't realize. Like for Mm. me, it was that you know, developing my voice, developing my confidence. I feel like at this point in my life, I am fortunate enough to be able to walk into a room of people and have a conversation with just about anyone. And I would say things like pageants and having to do, you know, panel interviews, one-on-one interviews, onstage question, that just opens you up and um, to be being a more confident, articulate person. And so I've personally gained a lot from them, but even now, um, you know, there's definitely still stigmas that are out there um, with the pageant piece. And especially as an adult woman, a woman rather, who, you know, is in a um, in an academic type setting and environment. And I, I think it's unfortunate because, and I'd like to say that part of the reason that I'm participating and um, speaking to to folks like you and and to others 
um, is that a lot of the community service work um, gets overlooked. And, you know, all of the women that I competed with are all working in the community. They're all giving back in some way. And that didn't stop, even if they didn't win. Um, and so that work still continues and, you know, we're supporting projects for one another and so forth. And so a lot of that gets overlooked by, you know, some of the, the negative stereotypes. So you, you, you mentioned other, you mentioned other systems and without mm -hmm. naming other systems, but when yes. you talk about other systems, mm -hmm. I suspect, I suspect those, those other systems are at least in part, the pageants that I might see on television. Is that, mm -hmm. is that fair to say without naming names? I, I think so. I mean, I think it's fair to say um, for sure. And um, yes, I, I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> and, 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 and if you would, because you, I mean, you are, you support the, the United States of America pageant system. Mm -hmm. um, can you put in a plug for them? I mean, why, why, why that system? Why, 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 why do you choose to participate in that? pageant system? Great question. Um, so again, I, you know, not not to kind of um, keep going back to the community service piece, but um, empower, uplift, and inspire is the, the heart of their mission statement. And so they are looking for women who um, are going to go out into their communities, empower others to get involved, inspire them by what, you know, we as queens are doing, and then uplift people in the community by the, the types of projects that we're, that we're um, choosing to pursue. And so for me, that was a major piece that, um, that drew me to, to them. Um, the other aspect of it that I would say is the aspect, um, and, it, and it sounds a little cliche, but it, it really is um, something that I have experienced, is this idea of um, a sisterhood. And that is, you know, the, the women that you're, quote, competing with, um, are, are actually, you know, your, your pageant sisters. And, um, and I can, you know, very much say that, that that's the case, that you know, we all support each other. Um, you know, we're, we're even now, um, my, my first runner up, for instance, um, has gone to a couple events with me. Um, you know, we're, we're friends outside of the pageant. She, you know, offered to lend me her gown um, for, for going out to nationals and, and doing events. And like, you just, that's something so unique about the USOA system. Um, you know, I've definitely competed in other places where I've seen some, you know, rather mean, mean things that can happen. And like, it's unfortunate, but, um, that was one of the, the positive things about USOA that, that really drew me to that was the idea that I was going to meet, you know, motivated, talented, talented women that, um, I could connect to. And that, that was definitely true. So, so it's a competition. It is. Um, mm -hmm. and as a, as a, uh, as a, as a professional coach, yes. um, who, who coaches people, um, uh, who coaches athletes and athletes mm -hmm. participate in competitions. So that, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, I sort of, I kind of intuitively, uh, intellectually understand, um, what athletic competition is like yes. but i don't really have any sense for what pageant competition mm -hmm. is like can you speak a little bit about the competition element of of the pageants that you do like what sure what are the aspects what i mean what what things are you competing in mm -hmm. um help help myself and the listener understand what 
the, the competition side of, of the pageants that you do? It, you know, it's, um, and, and you and I have worked together, uh, as, as coach and athlete for a long time now. And, and I think I can make this analogy for the listener as well. And, um, I would say pageants are, are like doing an ultra, um, you are, are going in, um, there's going to be variables that you can't control. Uh, you literally have to be ready for anything. You can do all the preparation in the world um, and then show up and have a curveball thrown at you. And you have to roll with it. You have to be able to take it in stride and keep your mental game sharp um, and, and move forward. So for States, we had a weekend and um, I probably packed more for that weekend than people do for ultras, uh, but it's, um, it's, it's a lot. So, you know, you're pretty much judged on stage and in an interview, um, but the sentiment is you're judged from the moment you check in. And so from the first moment the weekend starts, you have to be on, you have to be um, fashionable, you have to be looking your best, you have to, you know, be speaking um, clearly and, um, you know, with some authority and, um, you know, really be mindful of, of your presence, um, putting your best foot forward in rehearsals, um, you know, being a, a positive person um, is, is certainly something that that carries you far, but there's lots of rehearsals. There's lots of events that you do. Um, so for us, we had uh, an orientation where um, we were introduced to everyone that we were competing with. Um, we sort of learned the flow for the weekend. We um, had an opportunity to ask questions and right from there flowed into um, some pretty intense rehearsals for you know, learning walking patterns, learning opening number dances. And it does not sound hard, but let me tell you, my legs felt the same as they did after running a marathon as they did at the end of the first day of rehearsals, because you were wearing these four to five inch heels and you're working your legs. And so when I went to bed on that first night, I really felt like I had run a marathon. And you had to wake up the next morning, um, you know, you're, you're up before the sun comes up and you're, you know, getting ready for that interview experience. And you have literally three minutes with each judge to sit down and shine, basically, and to, to come across in a way that is personable, educated, um, and convince them that you're the right person for the job. And so it's a round robin style. You, like I said, you have three minutes to, to put your best foot forward to make that connection. And that's a, a pretty big chunk of your score. From there, we, again, you know, we had a lot of, um, we had to do a lot of photos. We did um, a photo tour of DC, which was amazing. Um, more rehearsals, and then you flow right into the, the pageant night. And it goes really fast. Um, you have your opening number, uh, for us, we had a, a relatively easy dance to learn. Um, thank you uh, to, to Devani, our director, for that, because, oh, man, um, dancing in heels is um, something I'm still working on. But uh, so, you know, you roll from that. There is a fitness component. So for me, um, that meant, you know, hitting the gym, 
pretty hard um, with with weight training, you know, continuing my my running. That was certainly a big part of it. Um, and there's a huge confidence piece to that. I'll tell you, um, you know, a lot of people as well sort of stereotype that aspect of pageantry. But I can tell you that, um, you know, if you can find the confidence in the ability to put a two-piece bathing suit on in four-inch heels and walk across the stage and look like you own it, you can do just about anything. And so, um, you know, that for me um, used to be the phase of competition that sort of intimidated me most. Um, I, even though I was a, a college athlete, um, it was always something that I just never felt comfortable in my own skin. And that was something that I really found as an adult. And I'll tell you, when you feel comfortable in your own skin and you get out there and you just own it, um, something else comes across that you didn't even know was possible. Um, so that part of the competition um, has, has become one of the things that I think um, pushes me, that challenges me still uh, to, to do better, to, you know, to, to feel even more comfortable out there and to just have fun. Um, and so this time around, I really did feel like that was the case. Um, you know, it was, it was one of those things where uh, I realized it was over before I, I had time to think about it. And that's always good. Um, you know, you don't want to be out there and start thinking, oh my gosh, what am I doing? Um, that's when that, that look kind of comes over your face. So um, the fact that I got through it and I was like, oh, wait, wow, I just did that. Um, that, that was good. Um, and then you have an onstage question and you have no idea what they're going to ask you. Um, you get out there. It could be anything. It could be anything about your platform. It could be anything about your application, literally anything. Um, and you have, you know, 30 seconds to an answer to, or an, a minute to deliver an articulate answer. And so um, at the end of those aspects of competition, they, they choose a winner. Um, so what do you remember what question you were asked oh gosh yeah, um, here, here i am putting you on the spot <laughs> i love it um <laughs> i was asked something about um what i thought uh was one of the the biggest concerns for um our our young women um today okay um mm -hmm. I, I won't i won't ask you to re rehash it. <laughs> just curious what, what that question was um, well, with, with, with all competitions, um, one of the things that you and I have been working on, um, for the past five years is, um, walking away from an experience, mm -hmm. having, having learned mm -hmm. something new or affirmed something that we, we thought that we knew. Mm -hmm. Um, so in, in hindsight, now that the, you know, the competition is, is now several weeks behind you, um, mm -hmm. What lesson or lessons did you learn or uh, affirm from that weekend experience? Oh, definitely two sort of affirmations for sure. Um, number one, mindset really is everything. I had to keep myself in that sort of zone of, you know, this is who I am. Um, I am going to put my best foot forward and, um, and that's the thing I can control. And just staying in a really positive, strong mindset, 
um, being in a place where I wasn't comparing myself to other women, which can be really tempting and easy to do in a, in a situation like this where you, you are being judged. Um, but, you know, really it affirmed for me that um, my strength comes from when I am focused on who I am and myself and what I put forth. Um, and then the second thing I would say that, um, you know, that it really affirmed is this idea that, um, that you're going to show up for these situations and there's going to be so many things that you can't control and you have to have the courage to show up for those situations. Um, I think it was Brené Brown who said, literally, um, have the courage to show up when you can't control the outcome. And that's something that just really was reaffirmed for me. Um, you know, certainly, am I, am I thrilled that I won? Absolutely. But, um, you know, would I have felt as fulfilled by the experience had I not? Absolutely. Mm, um, yeah. And, you know, that's something that um, for me is, is such a big takeaway. Mm. And uh, j just a quick follow up to that, <clears throat> um, you know, th through our mindset work together over the last mm -hmm. five years, um, do you, do you feel like like the mindset work that you've done as an endurance athlete in the last five years resulted in you having a little bit different experience mm -hmm. perhaps than the last time that you did a pageant from a mindset standpoint? Oh gosh, 130%. Um, absolutely. Um, it was such a game changer. I mean, you know, just this idea of like manifesting what you're putting forth um, in the universe in terms of that positive energy and that um, you know, focusing on, um, on what you can control and letting the rest go. Um, and, you know, the, the preparation aspect, I think, came into it and just realizing that, um, that that mindset work had already been built and that, um, you know, I just needed to trust the process. Um, and that for me was huge. Yeah. Do in your conversations with your fellow participants, um, do you feel like that mindset work gave you a little bit of an edge? I think so. Um, you know, and I think it, it, again, it lent to that confidence that I just felt like when I showed up, um, I, I was confident in who I was and what I had done to prepare both physically and mentally um, and all of the other stuff that goes into the pageant um, piece as well from, you know, building your image and your wardrobe and making sure that everything's coming together, all of those pieces aligned. And that mindset was the thing that tied it all together. Um, yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that's a really interesting connection between, uh, between the, the, uh, between pageants and endurance sports. Well, well, an, an important part of being a, a, a pageant contestant, um, is your, uh, and, and subsequently, uh, wearing the crown of Miss mm -hmm. Maryland, um, is having a platform, mm -hmm. uh, and being involved, uh, in the community. So, um, mm -hmm. I I'd like you to talk, um, a little bit about, uh, first of all, what is your, what is your platform? And let's, 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 let's dig in on, on that a little bit. 
Great. Um, so my platform stems, of course, from my, my life's work, really. Um, and that's what I um, talked to the judges about a lot was, um, you know, Literacy for Life is my platform, but it's not just my platform, it's who I am. Um, it's the work that I've been doing for the last 22 years professionally, and it's something that just drives me as a person. Um, so um, help help me to and, and the listener to understand um, what what literacy is. Um, mm -hmm. What 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 does what what is low literacy? What is mm -hmm. illiteracy? What and what, mm -hmm. what's the difference between these different terms that? Um, that, that I, I think are commonly heard from time to time. What, mm -hmm. what is it? Well, so when I, I, I guess the first thing to, to kind of put out there and um, forgive me, I'm going to get a, a little professor nerdy on you. Yeah. Um, but, nerd out. <laughs> but when we talk about literacy in society, we, we're talking generally about what we call dominant literacy in academia. And so dominant literacy is the ability to, to read and to write um, pretty traditional texts. And when we hear things like illiteracy and low literacy rates, um, it's very much talking about that idea of a dominant literacy. So the ability to, you know, to read sort of a traditional book, a lot of people think of like the assigned reading in school or to, you know, write a traditional essay. And, you know, that that idea of the five paragraph essay creeps into everyone's head and you kind of go, oh, um, but that's what we we think about when when we when we hear literacy, because that's what we've experienced in in our lives primarily. Uh, for me, when I'm talking about literacy for life, I'm thinking a little bit more broadly. Um, so there's another concept in my profession called, the, it's the idea of multiple literacies or the funds of knowledge. And so the funds of knowledge and multiple literacies fit together. So what that sort of talks about is everyone comes to a space with a set of literacies. So for instance, as endurance athletes, we have our own literacy. We have our own way of communicating with one another. We have our own um, set of terminologies. We sort of understand the rules, if you will, of being part of that endurance athlete culture. Um, you know, there's certain lingo that we use. We talk about like ultras and, you know, we, we use the metric system. And there's just a lot of little nuances that someone who wasn't an endurance athlete would have no idea of what we were talking about. Um, we would have to bring them into that space. And the idea of multiple literacies is that everyone has some literacy that they are using to communicate um, with society in some way. And so our job um, as, as teachers and educators is to, um, to help untap um, those potentials um, within those literacies. And so what I believe and what I teach is that um, using those literacies that kids and adults already have internally and using those to support them to learn the dominant literacy skills if they don't already have them. Um, because there, there are a lot of connections there. Um, we just have to be able to make them. Um, now, <clears throat> Within the United States, um, mm -hmm. although although perhaps it's not as as profound as it is maybe in other uh, other parts of the world and other cultures, but um, uh, 
but but we have different dialects here mm-hmm. uh, in in the United States w- within the English language. Uh, for Absolutely. instance, right? For instance, um, uh, you know, if um, if I travel to the very deep south, to the mm-hmm. you know, to the to the bayou of Louisiana, mm-hmm. um, I might. I, I mean, I might. Cons- I'm I'm a I'm a you know a college educated individual from the Northeast. But um, but if I were to travel to the very very deep south, the bayou of 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 of, of Louisiana, I might have a difficult time communicating um, with with folks that speak, you know, the Cajun dialect, and mm-hmm. um, uh, and so w- 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 would that be an aspect of 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 literacy for me? And, and in other words, like how do you how do you account for for different cultures and and different Absolutely. dialects? Uh, I mean. Mm-hmm. How do you standardize literacy? Mm-hmm. Who, who's to say oh. that? Who's to say that, for instance, the traditional spoken English word mm-hmm. is the is the standard or norm for mm-hmm. literacy? And, and and so, how do you work around that? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, so there's so there's so many components to that. Um, first of all, certainly culturally, um, that's the, a huge part of the funds of knowledge um, side of things. Is that uh, cultures all have their their unique dialects, their um, their ways of even storytelling. Um, I had students at one point who um, they learned story through their elders, and their elders would pass down stories, and they would sit around and they would hear these stories. And you know, part of fitting into that culture was being able to learn how to tell a good oral story. And so when when those students come to school, they might not have the same book experience, but it's not to say that they don't know the elements of story. And so it's finding those connections and um, and helping to strengthen those connections rather than discount, um, you know, cultures and experiences that are different than our own. Um, That's really, I think, where we get into trouble is when. Um, you know, we, we expect students to, to come in and learn the same way and to come out with the same skills. And, um, you know, I think regardless of where you live, um, you know, whether it be here in the United States, you know, somewhere else, um, there is an expectation that at some point you will learn to read text and write, um, in order to communicate. And so, um, what we have to do is make space for other literacies as well and use those to really strengthen, um, you know, the sort of idea of dominant literacy, uh, which, you know, you do need to move forward. Uh, I think that's, you know, uh, where, where we are at in terms of um, expectations and participation in society. You, you definitely need to have those skills as a foundation, um, but there's so much room to, to bring in so much more. Well, do you think there's some element of affluence bias, um, meaning it, it, you know, it, it's it's the most affluent uh, mm. within our culture that sort of set mm-hmm. the norms and the rules for oh. for for what the standards of literacy are? Um, because I, I, I sure I, I, I'm sure that there are cultures in which within the culture, mm-hmm. even if even if the even if the degree to which they can read and write mm-hmm. in a standard way, even if that is would be considered low. Mm-hmm. Um, they're still prosperous. They're mm-hmm. still happy. They're still, 100%. do you know what I mean? Like I, absolutely. Is, is there an affluence bias when it comes to how literacy is defined? Oh, 
Absolutely. Um, you know, I think that's something that as a profession, um, you know, we, we've definitely acknowledged um, time and time again. And um, for me, that's where a lot of my work um, with multiple literacies and bringing in, um, you know, education around funds of knowledge. And um, that's one of the things that uh, I teach a lot of in my undergrad classes is um, mine focus primarily on literacy assessment and um, recognizing the bias within the, the assessment of literacy skills and, and what it measures and what it doesn't and getting my future teachers to recognize that so that they can go out in the field and say, well, okay, I know that the state or whoever is mandating I give these assessments, but what else can I do to really get a sense of what skills my students are bringing to the classroom so that they can be more inclusive of that and tap into those strengths? Because the other piece of it is students need to be heard. They need to be seen. They need to, to know that you understand who they are as people. Um, and a lot of times when we start to think about, you know, illiteracy or low literacy rates, we, we group, you know, folks together and, and we lose that, that side of humanity when, when we're, you know, looking at the problem more, more macro level. Hmm. Um, and so that's important to me too, to, to make sure that we're, you know, working with our future teachers to say, okay, like what biases exist in, in these assessments and this instruction and how am I going to make sure that my students feel seen and heard? So um, let, 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 let's talk about traditionally why, um, uh, why literacy is important. Hmm. And may, maybe as part of this discussion of why literacy is important, we can talk about um, what, what the potential what the potential societal impacts are of mm -hmm. low literacy or illiteracy. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about um, why it's important to, to, to why, why is literacy important? Mm -hmm. And maybe again, as part of that, what, what are the, what are the potential societal impacts of mm -hmm. low literacy or illiteracy? I mean, if you think about even, um, you know, doing basic, basic things that we somehow take for granted, um, like being able to drive a car, um, being able to take public transportation, um, rent or own a place to live. All of those things require that you have a certain level of literacy skills. Um, you have to be able to um, read and interpret your driver's manual to take the test. You have to be able to interpret signs out on the road and be able to follow those rules. Um, you know, you have to be able to read and interpret your lease. And, um, you know, all of those things we sort of take for granted, um, but those are literacy skills. Those are life literacy skills. And, you know, when, when children and adults don't have adequate um, literacy skills, they often um, miss out on opportunities that could help get them further, whether it be, you know, a, acquiring a driver's license to take a better job or be able to, you know, navigate public transportation to get to a job. I mean, so many different examples, but we often underestimate those, those skills that require those literacies, those literacy um, attributes. Um, so <clears throat> let, 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 let's talk about some of the impacts of, of low literacy or illiteracy. Mm -hmm. Um, 
from you know from from a little bit of reading um, that that I did uh, on on the subject, I, I'd like you to comment on 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 a couple of different things. Sure. Um, the first is the effects of um, of um, uh, low literacy or illiteracy. I, can I use one of the or the other term? Do I need to use both? Can I yeah, use? Can I say can, illiteracy? Does that? Yeah, that's okay. fine. Yeah. I mean, the, the the presumption is when if if I use the term illiteracy, I'm talking about the spectrum. I mean, because literacy, I literacy, right. I suspect happens on a spectrum. It's not black. It or white. does. Either you are lit. It's not right. that either you are literate or you are illiterate. That there's right. that, that there's a continuum there. So, but there I'll just just to to make things make things a little simple, I'll, I'll, I will use the term illiteracy. Um, what's the connection between uh, illiteracy and uh, and and unemployment or mm. or or underemployment? Mm -hmm. um, it, is there a connection between between illiteracy oh. and mm -hmm. employment? There is a scary correlation, not only between um, literacy levels and employment or underemployment, um, but also incarceration. And that is something that, um, you know, is not new to education. There have been so many studies done about that. Uh, and despite what we're learning, um, you know, we're still in the space of, of trying to make headway with it. But there's definitely, you know, unfortunately, a negative correlation between if you don't eventually learn what we know to be the dominant literacy skills, um, you know, that the idea that you will be either not employed or underemployed, you know, working, you know, sometimes probably two or three um, minimum wage jobs to, to make ends meet, um, you know, through, uh, you know, unfortunately, higher incarceration rates um, for for folks who, who are Ill illiterate. I mean, that that is an unfortunate truth. Yeah. So uh, it, to, to pick up on that, um, one of the statistics I read was that uh, approximately 70 percent, mm -hmm. seven zero, 70 yeah. percent of inmates in the United States cannot read above fourth grade mm -hmm. level. I guess my question is, um, is this a uh, is this a I mean, is this a chicken and the egg thing? Um, in other words, mm -hmm. is it is it is it low literacy? that mm -hmm. increases the risk of incarceration um or you know are there are, are there other 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 variables or and or can you can you elucidate what the mm -hmm. uh and 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 describe a little bit more about what why is it that liter that the illiteracy might increase mm -hmm. the risk of incarceration why why is that oh my gosh or, or is it yeah. just a, or is it a totally spurious type of mm -hmm. uh, type type of statistic in other words that there is no cause and effect between incarceration and literacy no i, I mean sadly I, I i do think that that there is a, a strong correlation um and i think it stems from a lot of different things so you know we certainly know that poverty has um, a monumental uh, impact on, um, you know, even uh, right down, like not just with literacy, but school attendance um, and regular school attendance, which can then lead lead to issues with illiteracy, which then compounds things um, uh, for, you know, folks that are are not in school or don't finish school or you know exit school with either little or no literacy skills. And then that leads to, you know, unfortunately, um, a series of choices that, you know, people find themselves um, incarcerated. I don't think it's like 
an X plus Y equals Z situation. Um, it's not black and white at all, but there are certainly um, just way too many statistics and studies that talk about the impact of, of low to no literacy skills and, and incarceration and, um, you know, underemployment or non-employment. And um, it's, it, it's, it's a major concern. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I, I think our, our, our previous conversation about or previous discussion about literacy and employment. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I think that, I think there is a clear and distinct relationship between employment and incarceration or, mm-hmm. or, or unemployment or underemployment and incarceration. So if you sort of follow that line of thinking, if, right. if illiteracy leads to unemployment, leads to an increased likelihood of underemployment or, uh, or unemployment. And then if, if there is a connection between unemployment or underemployment and incarceration, you can sort of, mm-hmm. it, it, it's not, it's not hard to sort of connect the three dots. Right. I mean, you, you, in, you, you use the phrase, it's not black and white. Right. And I know you weren't referring to ethnicity, but, but, no, ethnicity, no. but, but there is, but there are discrepancies in, mm-hmm. in illiteracy or literacy rates um, 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 between ethnicities. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you know about that? Can you talk a little uh, bit about, about liter- literacy and ethnicity? Absolutely. Um, well, so I can, I can, I'm going to cite one of the, um, the books that for me, when I was going through my doctoral program um, at the University of Vermont, we had a tremendous focus on social justice in our program. And so I was always looking at and thinking about literacy through a social justice lens. And one of the things that I sort of probed a little deeper into was even the idea of um, what the impacts of school tracking are on um, on literacy and then, you know, subsequent under and employment, incarceration and so forth. And a book called Ain't No Making It um, by Jay McLeod uh, really um, transformed the way that I was thinking about education and about literacy. And it sort of launched me down this path of social justice and down a path of um, being an advocate for inclusive education. Because essentially in the book, um, Jay McLeod uh, begins this study of two groups of students, one um, primarily black students living in uh, a housing community, um, you know, uh, in poverty, um, the other living in the same community, uh, but a group of white students, and they were going to the same high school, and he followed their trajectories um, across a number of years. And um, what it highlighted was a few things, um, that number one, race um, certainly has an impact on um, how do I want to say, like, opportunities, particularly um, within um, school systems and school systems that track, um, which many school systems do still track. So tracking is the idea that um, a student enters a sort of level, whether it be, um, you know, they're deemed um, college prep, um, you know, uh, academic sort of honors or, um, you know, general. 
And there, there's any number of levels depending on the school district. And he sort of followed, um, you know, the opportunities that both groups of students had. And even though, um, you know, the, the students in, in this study group that, um, that were Black Americans um, were working really hard, um, they weren't being given the same opportunities as their uh, white counterparts in, in many in many aspects. And so um, it, it was an eye opener, I think, in terms of um, not only the impact that race can have on literacy, but also the impact that tracking can have um, on a child's life. And, um, you know, that's something I definitely saw as a teacher. Um, and, and, you know, now I certainly talk about with my with my teacher candidates. Hmm. Um, yeah, I'm 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 glad you 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 talked about that a little bit because what I you know what I what I one of the things I find fascinating about the um, about the the U.S. child literacy statistics, mm-hmm. and as we look at, I mean, there's probably any number of organizations that rank the states in terms of child mm. literacy. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the in the one particular resource that I was looking at, um, interestingly enough, um, Massachusetts is ranked number one in terms of mm-hmm. child literacy. Mm-hmm. Um, New Hampshire, uh, where, where I live, is ranked number three. Mm-hmm. But the second ranked state is Maryland, the state mm-hmm. that you live in and that you <laughs> that, that you that you work in. Um, yes. And, you know, from a from an ethnic diversity standpoint, um, I don't think Massachusetts rivals Maryland, but but no. Massachusetts is probably well ahead of New Hampshire in terms yes. of, ethnic, you know, uh, ethnic diversity. Um, and, and, you know, again, when I mean, when I when I think of when I think of Maryland, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think of Baltimore because it's, mm-hmm. it's probably if it's not the largest city, it's probably one of the largest cities in Maryland. Yes, um, yes. And, and unfortunately, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the common mm-hmm. news that comes out of mm-hmm. Maryland and Baltimore in particular is not necessarily great right. news. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, typically, the stories involve crime. And and, mm-hmm. uh, and so I, I guess my, my question is, um, well, first of all, do you, do you agree with that statistic that that Maryland is is in the top three in terms of child literacy? And and, oh. and if, if you do agree with that or don't disagree with that, what, what what do you think attributes to that? Because because from an ethnic diversity standpoint, mm-hmm. Maryland generally, but Baltimore specifically, oh, yes. um, is 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 quite ethnically diverse, and yet mm-hmm. and yet Maryland seems as though they're doing pretty well. Is that a uh, it, 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 uh, is, is that an outlier? Like, is there is there something that's happening maybe in the suburbs that's oh skewing God. that data? Um, that because because I mm-hmm. I suspect that there are that there are schools in the inner city Baltimore that are not doing mm-hmm. all that well from a proficiency standpoint. So help help me understand that uh, that statistic, that child literacy statistic, mm-hmm. specifically with respect to the state of Maryland. Well, I think I well. Here's, here's what I always caution people on, um, you know, being an assessment person, um, and that's sort of one of my, my specialties and, and something that um, I, I spend a lot of my, my research time on, a lot of my teaching time on. I, I don't know um, whether or not the states were judged using the same assessment, 
So I'm honestly not sure if it's fair to make comparisons in that way. Um, and I'm not using that as a cop out by any means, but I think one of the things that I always talk to parents and teachers about when I'm, I'm speaking about literacy more broadly is this idea that, for instance, um, when uh, we saw, you know, the, the big push for more common standardized tests come down, part of the reason for that was um, at one point, every state was um, creating their own assessment and they were able to decide what the level was for what was considered passing or what was considered an acceptable literate level. And so if you had a state like Massachusetts, that's, and the only reason I'm, I'm using them as an example is because I was employed at a, a college there and I did a lot of work with the Department of Ed. And so I'm very familiar with the assessments that students there take. I would argue that that assessment is much more rigorous than say, if you go to a state like, and, and I'm sorry to pick on them, but like Alabama or Mississippi, um, their assessment is going to be much, you know, a, at a, a different level. Um, and so proficiency really can't be equally compared because students in Massachusetts are being held to a, a higher standard than students in, in Mississippi. And I think part of the pressure that happened there was, um, you know, they, the states had to meet a threshold to prove to the government that their schools were succeeding. And if they weren't, schools were being labeled and then taken over um, because they weren't producing students who were meeting those test standards. And so for the state, it was a motivator to make the test less hard because they didn't want to look bad when they reported those numbers. So unfortunately, the assessments can be um, at times very political. Um, and so it can be a little difficult to compare, say, you know, are students in Maryland um, as literate or more literate than students in, you know, New Mexico or California. Um, but I, I would say from someone who has taught now, um, you know, as an educator in, in multiple states, I have had an opportunity to travel around the country um, and work with school districts in states really ranging, um, you know, from Texas, California, Arkansas, Florida, Connecticut, New Jersey. I mean, I did a lot of work as a consultant, and so I've seen a lot of different schools. And I think the thing that makes me continue this work is that they're facing the same challenges. Um, you know, schools are often underfunded. Um, you know, right now we have a tremendous teacher shortage. Um, you know, so literacy skills um, after the pandemic, when a lot of children were doing um, remote learning, um, in some cases that was all for, for, you know, a year and a half to two years, they're coming back into schools with tremendous gaps. And so we're seeing the problems magnified um, because of all of these different factors. And so, um, you know, I wish I could say that, you know, we were doing something really magical in Maryland. I think um, there are some amazing educators here. I've certainly had an opportunity to work with some incredible people 
um, in my courses at um, at Towson and um, you know starting to build some of those community bridges community bridges 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 but comments about schools in in Baltimore City um, having higher needs I think are absolutely true um, and that was part of what drove me to create Literacy for Life and my nonprofit community literacy partners is because what I was seeing was there is all kinds of support for schools in what we consider Baltimore County, which would essentially be sort of the large suburb that surrounds Baltimore City. And there weren't as many resources going to the students with the highest need in Baltimore City. Um, you know, the schools are tremendously diverse. Um, there's a lot of English, English language learners, um, and they're just, they're under-resourced. And so for me, I saw a need and uh, a way that I could help fill that gap. Mm. Um, yeah, I, the, 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 way, the, the way that you described the, the challenges of comparing literacy inter, in an interstate mm -hmm. manner um, sort of, you know, gets me thinking about um, the challenges of, of intrastate literacy um, and, and, and the challenges of, of comparing, for instance, um, you know, an, an, an affluent suburb of Washington, D.C. with mm -hmm. inner city Baltimore. I mean, mm -hmm. there has to be a, I mean, there's, there's a state board of education and that state board of education mm -hmm. in Maryland determines the, the reading and writing proficiencies for that state. Um, Absolutely. But, 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 but Maryland, certainly much more than New Hampshire. I mean, it, maybe it's argued that, uh, that, 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 you know, that, that the North country of New Hampshire is a little bit different, say from the, the you know, the, the, the Southern part of the state mm -hmm. of New Hampshire, but truthfully, mm -hmm. there's not a whole, there's not a tremendous difference. And there is difference in affluence in, in New Hampshire. I'm not mm -hmm. necessarily suggesting that I'm suggesting that the difference in affluence Mm -hmm. is much more stark and pronounced, I would guess, in Maryland than it would be in mm -hmm. New Hampshire. And so therefore, yes. doesn't, this, doesn't the State Board of Education in Maryland have a much more difficult job establishing reading and writing standards in, oh. terms, of, in terms of literacy within the state of Maryland? Mm -hmm. Even if you, even if for, and I, I, I completely accept your, your, your analysis of the challenges of comparing states, mm -hmm. but you have to be compared- I within the state. Um, and, and so then how does a school, how does a school board of education mm -hmm. then on the one hand want to establish standards that are high enough that drive mm -hmm. excellence because there are going to be very mm -hmm. high academic performers within the, yes. within the, the, the school system in Maryland, those high, those high performers are going to go to Ivy league schools and they're going to, they're going to mm -hmm. go to the prestigious schools. How do you how do you create standards that are high enough in order to to drive academic excellence in your high performers, but but yeah. standards that are not so high that it becomes it just becomes absolutely impossible for the for the for the the schools that have economic uh, and social challenges to meet those standards. It's a great question. Uh, they they definitely have um, a tremendously difficult job in that in that regard, um, you know. And so Maryland definitely uses uh, as as does New Hampshire um, and Massachusetts the sort of base root, if you will, of what what used to be the Common Core, um, you know, standards for English and and language uh, English language arts and mathematics. And so. 
Um, each state at this point, including Maryland, has sort of um, made those standards their own in some way. But that root um, is, is still very much there. And I think, um, you know, certainly the, the assessment piece um, is, is a big part of, of the story. And I think if you were to break down um, the, the data by school district, you would see tremendous differences be, between the more affluent um, districts and counties and, um, you know, unfortunately, the, the city schools and even some of the more rural schools. Um, you know, and I use that term a little bit differently um, here than than I would have in New Hampshire. But certainly there there are sort of what we would consider a little bit more rural schools in Maryland. Um, you know, there's definitely differences and um, you you have to, you know, you have to look at that in terms of, you know, how can we um, put our resources in into those places where they're going to have um you know a, a positive impact and so um you know i i don't have the most recent numbers in front of me but um but i i'm you know pretty confident that you would see some some pretty stark differences which be between the more affluent school districts and um and certainly those those inner city um schools and and not to say that those schools are not working tremendously hard they are um, you know, they have challenges that that many of the affluent schools um, don't have, and yet they're they're rising to to meet those student needs every single day. And so, um, you know, it's it's a complicated picture, and I think um, I think that's everywhere, but particularly in places where um, you know there are those disparities between the haves and the have-nots. Mm. Um... So you, you 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 help to you you help myself and the listener to understand what 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 literacy is and 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 why it's a problem. Um, talk a little bit about the the scope of the problem. Uh, like how yeah. how common like how common is this? What what are the what are the literacy statistics? Um, what what do we know about? Uh, about adult literacy and 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 uh, child mm -hmm. literacy here in the United States. Well, a couple of things I can talk about just in in very general terms um, that that I think people may be surprised about. But um, in general, our newspaper articles, our you know daily news, is written at about a fifth grade level, um, sixth on the high end, and that says a lot about. Um, you know what their their target is that they're um, you know they want to put out a publication that's going to be accessible to you know the population and um, and they're doing so at a fifth grade level on average and so I think um, you know that's something that's always kind of sat with me uh, as we think about you know the impacts of literacy and um, and and the implications that can have. Um, so certainly with adult literacy, um, you know, it, more and more people, I think, are, are stepping away from, um, you know, the idea that they're going to um, be critical thinkers and critical consumers of, of information. Like, we want things fast. We want things, um, 
you know, uh, we want the easy answer, so to speak. And, and the internet in some ways has been an amazing resource in terms of, you know, opening up, um, you know, resources that, uh, you know, I certainly didn't have as a kid when I was doing, um, you know, different projects and so forth. But I think, you know, because of that, it's also created this need for um, some media literacy as well. And so, um, you know, sometimes people will will read one thing and take it at face value versus, you know, questioning it and so forth. Um, but the fact that um, these pieces are written at a fifth grade level, um, I think suggests the sort of um, the breadth of the problem. Uh, and that is, you know, we have people who, yes, they have literacy skills and they're functioning on a day-to-day -day basis, but they might not have um, the skills that they need to to take themselves to the next level. Um, and, and, you know, we have those folks who, um, you know, are in a space where they want to make a change, but they but they're not sure how either. And so that that comes into it. Um, on the, the children's side of things, um, one of the things that we know, and, and this is something that, um, you know, I'm, I'm really working to, to sort of, not necessarily, I think solve is the wrong word, because um, I think it's a much more complex problem. But there's a statistic that talks about um, over the summer, if kids aren't engaged in some form of reading, um, whether it be, you know, books, magazines, articles, any type of reading, um, that they're going to lose up to 25% of the learning gains they made from the previous year. And so that's monumental. 25% of learning from the year before um, you know, could potentially slip away if these these kids aren't engaged in some form of um, engagement in, with with literacy. And what we know is the kids that are most often impacted by that are those living in poverty, um, those who don't have regular access to books or access to reliable internet where they can get on and do online books because that's become an amazing resource. But if you don't have a computer, you don't have online access, like you're still not going to be able to, to use those to your advantage. And so that's one of the things for me that, um, that I wanted to, to do something to take a step in the right direction. Um, so one of the things that um, my nonprofit community literacy partners is going to do um, is and, and actually this ties really nicely into um, my my two passions. Um, so running and literacy. I'm going to be hosting um, the first annual 10K. I'm going to call it the race for reading. And um, all of the proceeds that are raised are going to be used to purchase books for Baltimore City kids ahead of the summer break. And I've already um, worked to set up, um, you know, some schools who are interested in receiving these books. And the kids are going to get to select the book that, or books, hopefully, plural, um, you know, that, that I'm able to provide. And those books are them. They're going to own those books. They're going to take them home over the summer. Um, you know, they're going to be able to go back to them, read them, trade them with their friends. Um, but that 10K and the, the funds that we raise from, from that is going to be um, really where um, 
where we're able to, to start making an impact on that summer slide. Um, yeah. And, and uh, where, where do people find out more about this, this 10 K race? Excellent question. Um, so I just launched actually the Facebook page um, earlier today. So it's called the race for reading 10 K uh, and you can find it on Facebook as well as run sign up. And um, that is going to be here in Maryland. It's going to be hosted on the NCR trail, which is one of our um, local running spots. It's a little bit like the rail trail from New Hampshire. Um, it's a, a pretty great place. A lot of people um, get out there. And I figured let's do it in March. Uh, let's do it at the end of March because here uh, in Maryland, we have a, a little bit uh, of a milder spring. And uh, it's a great way for, for runners to get out there and test their, their spring fitness, see where they're at, um, and also make, make a positive impact on the community. Mm. And um, that was one of the things that I really felt like, okay, this is a way I can bring together two things I really love um, and, and have a positive impact in the meantime. So there, um, and I'll, 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 I'll share the, uh, the link uh, to that, uh, race, um, uh, after the show, uh, for the listener. Um, so your, your, your nonprofit, the community, community literacy partners, um, and this road race, um, that your host, uh, that you're going to be hosting in March. Um, the, that's not the extent of your community involvement. You also, uh, you also collected over 300 books, um, mm -hmm. uh, at a book drive for a, a, a women's homeless shelter in Perry hall, Maryland. What, 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 what was the, what, what, why that, what, what, how did you identify that, that, that women's homeless shelter as a, as a need for, for literacy help uh, connect the dots there, help, help, help sure. to understand, understand that. So I actually um, through the pageant um, met a number of women who were looking for other people to get involved with their community. And so I was invited to join the Women's Club of Perry Hall. And it is a group of just women of all ages from people younger than myself to probably my grandmother's age. And um, they get together and they take on community projects. And one of their projects was um, they regularly work with this women's shelter, which houses women and children who are currently homeless. And they do different things throughout the year. And a call went out and they said, oh, we'd really like to, to you know, get a hundred books. And I said, I can get you a hundred books in like a weekend. Let me see what I can do for you. Um, and so I started connecting my own network and connecting dots and putting the call out there and, you know, was really able to get to get over 300 books alone for them. Um, and they were actually um, really, uh, I would say, shocked and, and surprised, but they ended up getting, um, you know, from not just myself, but other ladies in the club, um, we collected 1200 total. And so... Yes. So they had so many books at one point, they said, we can't take any more because our storage closet is full, um, which was a great problem to have. Um, because one of the other pieces that we know is, you know, when um, 
folks are homeless, they're displaced, they don't have the resources and the security that they need. Um, you know, the last thing they're thinking about is, you know, having books on hand. And so if we can provide a way to have those there to make the library, you know, accessible 24 hours a day, that that's a huge step. Um, and so that, you know, certainly that was um, one of the projects that that I took on pretty early on. Uh, the other one was a backpack drive. So one of the other statistics that we know is if um, students come to school at the beginning of the year uh, unprepared, uh, they are two and a half times more likely to have behavior issues at school. And part of that is um, a defense mechanism, right? They, they know they don't have the supplies they need. Um, they don't want to be singled out for not having the supplies they need. And so they act out. Um, there's negative behaviors and um, things kind of spiral from there. And so one of the things that I wanted to do uh, was to, to help support schools who had a higher population of students um, that were coming without the, the needed supplies. And the statistics for the amount of money now that it takes to send a student back to school are frightening. Um, you know, some statistics were saying over $600 um, per child um, to get all of the supplies. Um, you know, I've seen a range anywhere from like two to 600, um, but it's a significant amount of money. And if you're on a limited budget or you're underemployed, um, it's gonna be very hard for you to get those supplies for, for your children. And so this backpack drive that I did um, was before the nonprofit actually started. It, it was the thing that kind of made me realize, um, okay, this needs to be bigger. Um, I, I, need to, I need to bring in more help with this. And um, you know, I pretty much uh, reached out to family and friends and community members and said, hey, this is what I wanna do. Um, I was able to raise $750 and I translated that into 25 fully stocked backpacks um, for kids and was able to deliver those to a school in Baltimore City. And they were just so overjoyed. It was, um, it, it was a, a really cool moment. Um, and will that, do, do you anticipate that that will be an annual thing um, that, you will, that, you will, that you will take on? Absolutely. And, you know, I've already started thinking about, um, you know, how now that I am, uh, you know, a 50C3 nonprofit, like, how can, how can I bring in um, more community resources to support that? Um, you know, for instance, we have Under Armour right here in our backyard. So I'm, you know, working on making a connection to them. So hopefully we can get some backpacks sponsored. Um, and so just trying to be um, a little bit strategic about making those connections. And ideally, I'd love to, to have a much bigger impact with this project, um, both this and the book project for the summer. Um, because those are, are two small things that we can do to just start making a bigger impact mm. on on helping students be be prepared. Mm. Um, and, that's and, really yeah. I and and I I suspect too that um, th th there probably is federal money available uh, in in mm -hmm. the form of in the form of grants um, mm -hmm. to help combat literacy. Is that am I right about that or you are? Um, you know it's. It's um, 
It's interesting. Um, there's there's a lot of grants out there, but they all have certain stipulations, and you know you have to you have to know what you're looking for. Um, you have to be in the right place. Sometimes you have to know the right people to help you. You know, take the steps you need. Um, I was actually really fortunate. Um, myself and um, three of my colleagues um, at Towson, we were just awarded uh, an eighty thousand dollar grant to study uh, writing instruction and English language learners over the next three years. Um, and so we were very fortunate in that. But unfortunately, um, I think the need is greater than the supply. Um, and so uh, we, we are taking that as a huge win and we're hoping that um, our work, our research can then have, you know, lasting impacts um you know on the field but also in our community um and then give us sort of a a, a next stepping point to to look for the next grant because um, it's pretty competitive yeah and uh, but outside of grants and and mm -hmm. um uh and and the, the 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 federal funding aspect i suspect that that um you know, you you now have this pretty unique platform as as, as the reigning mm -hmm. Miss Maryland um, that 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 you can um, that you can parlay into making important mm -hmm. connections or connections with important people oh, who have absolutely. resources. And so and so, you know, for instance, this the 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 the, the backpack and school supply initiative, mm -hmm. um, if not, you know, if not federally funded or supported through grant money mm -hmm. there there are a lot of really wealthy people out there that are, that are looking <laughs> well but that that, that are yes. that are looking to see their money used for good um yes. and i mean do you see there being an opportunity for you with your current title as as miss maryland to make connections with yes. important people that might help you to make mm -hmm. some of these initiatives um to 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 enhance them, to force multiply them. Absolutely. Um, I, my schedule has um, uh, filled up very quickly um, in terms of events that I am being asked to attend and support. Um, and I'm so excited about that um, because it, it is introducing me to a whole host of people that I would have never had the opportunity to meet um, had it not been for the Ms. Maryland title. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm definitely I'm attending different galas. Um, I'm at being asked to speak at fundraisers. Um, you know, I'm being invited to um, walk in parades and other things like that, where you're meeting um, people in government, you're meeting people who own corporations, who also run nonprofits. And, you know, those connections um, multiply and, you know, you just never know how, how one connection is going to lead to something else. And so being open to that process, I think, is going to be a huge part of this next year. Mm -hmm. And absolutely, it's, you know, one of the things I think that I'm looking forward to the most is, is having the ability to have conversations with different people, not only throughout Maryland, but also in the D.C. area, in Virginia, um, this past weekend, I was just at the James Cook County Library in Williamsburg, Virginia, 
doing an event with Mrs. Virginia, and um, we had the opportunity to speak with, you know, parents in the community there, um, people who are leading their own group um, of, of advocates for community service, um, and of course, kids, um, you know, getting to, to do some fun literacy work with them. But all of those events definitely wouldn't have been possible without the you know, the, the title and the support of, of Ms. Marilyn behind me. Um, and so it's opening a lot of doors, I think, that um, that wouldn't have necessarily been opened as easily. Well, I think, I mean, I, I think that's an excellent, sort of an excellent, excellent connection to sort of take this thing full circle. Um, you know, it, initially at the introduction of this or at the, at the beginning of this conversation, you know, you, you really emphasize the community involvement piece mm -hmm. of of why pageants are important to you mm -hmm. um and you know and and f for you it's it's sort of this concept of of doing good by doing well right the fact that you did so well in the pageant and you were and you were crowned miss maryland provides you or affords you with this incredible opportunity to do good and to do good mm -hmm. uh in 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 the communities um you know that you live and work in um, specifically with respect to literacy as, as, yes. as that, that is your platform. Um, uh, the last thing I want you to talk about in terms of community involvement is this, um, uh, this reading with royalty series that you have planned, yes. um, with, um, <laughs> with, uh, 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 Miss DC and, and Miss, uh, Virginia, what, what is reading with royalty? What, you know, <laughs> I, I have an idea of what that is, but what, what is it, what, what does it mean to you? What is, what is that project? Yes. So that was what I was just actually mentioning. Um, we did our first event um, down at the James James City County Library. Um, the first one was with Mrs. Virginia. And um, and basically it's an opportunity to, to invite kids to a space where, you know, oftentimes they're very drawn to that sparkly crown. And, you know, the, the idea that uh, there's a, a pageant queen. Um, and it's very magical for them. Um, and so our goal was to kind of get people in the door that way. Um, and then to say, hey, parents, let's talk about, let me talk to you about um, how you can be, you know, facilitating and, and working with literacy at home and what that looks like and um, things that you can do that aren't school-like, but that are, you know, developing language and vocabulary skills at home that are fun. Um, and so it was a great way to sort of balance this, um, you know, need for let's get children into the library, which is an incredible space. Um, the, the James City Library was absolutely gorgeous. They had an exploration room with different science experiments. They had a whole art room for kids set up. They had a play area where they could pretend they were at a grocery store and you know, go through that whole, and for early childhood, those early skills are so critical. Um, you know, learning how to interact with your peers, that language piece of it, um, of course, the fine motor skills that go along with that. So the fact that the, this library was set up um, in a way that was so student and child friendly was just so welcoming. Um, and so to be able to, you know, to talk about books, to hand out fun, you know, literacy bookmarks and um, but then have really great conversations with parents is really what it was all about. 
Um, and it is going to be a series. So um, our next one, um, we're in the midst of finalizing the dates, but we're thinking that one is going to be in DC so that Mrs. DC can take part as well. Um, and then the, the next one will, of course, be, be here in Maryland. And so um, it's just a really great opportunity to, for, for me in particular, but also my, my sister Queens to address literacy in a different way. So when I'm in my academic role um, and I'm talking about research and I'm talking about um, the things that we're doing to prepare teachers, that generally only appeals to a small group of people. Um, and they kind of go, yeah, that's really interesting, Bethany. Great. Um, and then, you know, it kind of ends there. And what we know um, about literacy is it has to be more accessible. Everyone has to feel welcome in a space. And so when I can sort of literally put on a different hat um, and, you know, walk into a space with, you know, my Ms. Maryland crown, I, I sort of become, um, you know, I, I become Bethany who really loves literacy, not Dr. Rice, who's going to tell you about the technical side of literacy, but I'm going to tell you the more, um, you know, the, the parent friendly version where now we can have a conversation about, you know, your child's likes and dislikes and how you can use that to really build their vocabulary or enhance their literacy at home. And I become a little bit more, um, maybe approachable is the right word, but um, it, it, it's a different feel. Well, there certainly can, there certainly can be barriers that, uh, uh, that are, uh, that are put up um, when uh, lay people interact with academia mm -hmm. <laughs> because yes. academician, they're not necessarily always the most approachable people in the world. Right. Right. But, 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 you know, to, to your point, um, you know, by, by wearing a different hat, by literally putting a yes. crown on you, you become much more, you become much more approachable. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, so for, for, for people in the, uh, for people in the, your local area, uh, where would people find out more information about this, uh, about this reading with royalty series? How, how do they find out if it's coming to a library near them? Great question. Um, so I will be launching um, more information. Um, I encourage everyone to follow me um, both on Instagram and Facebook at USOA Ms. MS Maryland. Um, and that's generally where I put out all of my event flyers. Um, and I, I put those out um, pretty, pretty far in advance so folks can plan. Um, but that's generally where our best place to kind of launch information um, at this point is, is from those social media pages. I am still in the process of um, setting up my logo and my branding. I'm really wanting to get that right for my, my nonprofit, the Community Literacy Partners. And so um, I'm sort of taking my time on that a little bit. And, um, you know, making sure that the website is something that I'm really proud of and that you know, the logo and the brand of it is something that that's going to be lasting. And so that's not ready to launch yet, um, but it will be in the next couple months. Um, and so for now, um, following me on the, those social media um, outlets is, is the best way to sort of stay up to date with um, with events and appearances and so forth.
Okay. So, um, so the, 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 the last thing that I, I wanted to talk to you about is, uh, related to it, to, to events. So you're, in addition to being Miss Marilyn, you're also an endurance athlete yourself with a, yes. uh, you know, with a, with a, with a fairly extensive, um, uh, in, in endurance racing resume, um, having completed, what did you say? Um, how many? Four? 13. 13. Yeah. You're training for yes. your 14th, your 14th marathon in, in South Carolina. Um, it, with, with, with a goal of, of, of running a marathon in each state. Eventually. Yes. My dogs. Um, but, but yet the next big event for you, mm-hmm. yes, you, you, you're running a race in December. We, we've, we've talked about that, but really yes. your next big a event right? Mm-hmm. A event being the most important event on your, on your schedule, um, is the, is the U S pageant is the, is the national mm-hmm. pageant. Yes. Um, and that's, the, that's the next big event you're training for. Correct. It is. Yeah, yes. Correct. That's so, right. Right. So, um, so talk about that. Where is it? Uh, when is it? What, what's that preparation? I mean, you know, for, for endurance athletes who, who know what, you know, and for marathoners who know what it's like mm-hmm. to prepare for, to prepare for a marathon, wh- what does it it's- take to prepare for a national level pageant? So oh. again, wh- where is it? Where's the national okay. pageant? When is it? And what does it take to prepare for, uh, mm. to, to be, to be crowned, um, Miss United, United States, United of States of America's Miz. Yeah. Yes. Uh, um, so thank you. You're welcome. No. Um, so, um, it's in Las Vegas. It's, um, from March 30th through April 2nd. So it's four full, very full days of competition. Uh, because it is the nationals, uh, you, you of course are, uh, competing with, with women from every state. Uh, and, it is broken down into both preliminaries and then there's a cut and then finals. Um, and so of course your goal is to, is to be crowned United States of America's Ms. in my case. Um, and so there's a lot that goes into it and the way that you and I are thinking about it together. Um, and this is, has been so helpful for me is to really think about it like a marathon training cycle. Um, because, it is. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Um, and that is the truth in so many regards. Um, so I'm going to be um, really stepping up my my game in the weight room. Um, and that's something for me that I have found over the last five years of, of us working together. Um, I went from someone who thought shoveling the driveway was uh, a strength workout, uh, Mother Nature's free strength workout, to um, to really embracing uh, life in the gym again. Um, and I think that that is something that has really built my confidence um, and is something that's going to help me um, walk in uh, with that sort of mental readiness that I need um, to, to succeed. Because for me, when I'm both physically feeling my best, um, then I'm going to be mentally feeling my best as well. And so it's working on both of those aspects um, at the same time. It's that discipline of, you know, being um, being in the gym regularly, committing to that that life of training, the you know the cycle that that we go through as endurance athletes, um, and 
and really making that sort of the, the first um, piece of the puzzle. And then of course is, is the other side of, of the preparation piece outside of the physical realm. It's, you know, um, making sure that I have all of my materials prepared. So my, my best resume to, to put forth to the judges, practice interviews, um, you know, doing things like this where I'm answering questions and, and doing an interview with a podcast or with a, you know, news outlet. So finding all of those opportunities to have those um, really in the moment conversations, again, really builds that, that confidence to walk into a national setting and succeed in interview. And then it's really making sure that um, I'm consistent with my personal brand. And so picking um, wardrobe and pieces that I'm not only going to feel my best in, but um, but have that consistent sort of brand of who I am as a person walking into that experience. Uh, and one of the things that I really, I think, also want to work on, and there's so many other nuances that I, I won't get into for folks, but um, one of the things that I want to just sort of spend more attention to myself um, is is being more in the moment. Um, and when I'm there, um, taking those deep breaths and looking around and saying, wow, like it took so much work to get here. Um, and just enjoying being in that space because it's so easy to get lost in the sort of busyness of it, the rush um, of the schedule. You know, you're, you're being tossed from um, rehearsal to events to, you know, appearances to pictures to all of these different things. And sometimes it's easy to get caught up in that. So for me, it's going to be finding those moments to take a breath, to look around, to say, wow, okay, I'm here. Um, and to, and to be in the moment. Um, and I think, you know, something that's, we talk a lot about that with, you know, our A events with endurance too, is, you know, you're, you put in all that time and preparation and regardless of, of the situation that you're facing, you know, being able to, to take a breath and look around and appreciate, um, where you're at and how you got there, I think is going to be a major key. Yeah, and I and I, I mean, I really think that um, that this national pageant um, is is not dissimilar to uh, a big destination event, right? When you okay. when you spend a lot of time and and resources traveling somewhere mm -hmm. really exotic to you know to, to do this right. once in a lifetime race, I always talk about um, making sure that you do not walk away from the event with any regrets. There's there's exactly. absolutely zero reason to walk away from those types of experiences with regrets. And so often exactly. um, regrets are a function of, um, uh, of, of setting up uh, inappropriate or unrealistic expectations, right? It's, it's when mm -hmm. we, uh, it, it's, it's when we don't have appropriate expectations is, is, is when, is, is when regrets uh, can begin to creep in and there's, and there's, right. there's zero need for that. So, I mean, you're, you're going there to win, for yes. sure. <laughs> right. Um, you know me, I'm pretty competitive. So for sure, absolutely. For sure. But there's more there, to you, to your, to the point that you just made, there's more to it than that, 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 that right. it really is this, this amazing, perhaps once in a lifetime opportunity. Um, mm -hmm. And what a shame it would be for you not to take in all just everything that the experience potentially has to offer to you. And, and, and in so much, 
these this incredible opportunity for growth, right? But but as you know, and as you know very well as as an educator, um, you know, growth is a function of learning. But but mm-hmm. but learning only happens if you're open and receptive to the lessons that these experiences teach. So, um, yes. I mean, right away, I I think you know with with that mindset of going in and just taking it all in. I mean, you're going there for a purpose and you're going to work really hard um, yes. leading up to the event to be the best version of yourself. Um, mm-hmm. But, 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 but you're, but you're also going to lean in to the experience and, and, mm-hmm. and to be, and to be present in the moment and, and, and to take everything in. Well, um, uh, lastly, um, uh, as it relates to the, to, to the pageant, this conversation, uh, you, you mentioned your social media feeds. I want you to mention them again because people are sure. actually people can actually follow along, right, uh, on this yes. journey of yours over the next couple of months leading up to nationals. Um, where, yeah, where where do people find you? What what social media platforms are you on? Um, sure. And 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 are you using those platforms to kind of help people follow along with this mm-hmm. with this journey? Absolutely. So I am learning fast and furiously um, how to step up my social media game. Um, I was, uh, you know, I, I was I was learning to start and I'm getting a little better. Um, so I am on Instagram and on Facebook and we have official accounts. So um, every time a new Ms. Maryland is crowned, um, you take over the existing account. So both of my accounts are, um, again, Facebook and Instagram, and it's at U-S-O-A Ms. M-S Maryland. Um, and so you can find me there. Um, I post several times a week. Um, I've been testing out uh, some reels uh, on both Facebook and Instagram, um, but a lot of pictures, a lot of updates. I try to do Fun Fact Fridays. Um you know, different things to kind of mix it up so that it's a little bit of literacy, a little bit of learning who I am as a person, um, different events that I'm doing. So I'm actually um, headed to Nashville this weekend, and um, I am finding ways to turn uh, opportunities like this also into literacy opportunities. So I'm um, bringing with me some books Um, that, again, I've been collecting book donations on an ongoing basis, and I'm going to visit a number of little libraries in Nashville and make some donations to those little libraries. So things like that are going to be included on my story as well as I go, and just really um, trying to share this experience with everyone um, so that it, it, you know, kind of highlights the different things that you can take part in if you're local to Maryland, but um, also gets gets folks to, to know me a little bit more too. Cool. Um, well, good segue uh, into the last uh, section of the show, uh, last segment of the show, and that's uh, three random questions. So um, I've right. got three random questions for you, um, uh, Miss Bethany Rice. Um, but first thing, can you, can you confirm for the listener that in fact, you have not been given these three questions in advance. I have not. I okay, have no so these, idea what you're going to ask. All right. So these truly are three random questions. Okay. You ready? Last part, last part of the ready. show. Three random questions. Okay. First random Go question for, for you is, uh, is this, and actually, uh, w- w- uh, your, your earlier comment, uh, actually, um, uh, uh, inspired me to ask you this question. What was your favorite book as a child? Oh goodness, that is such a tough one. Um, hmm. 
my grandmother gave me the whole Peter Rabbit series. Um, it was like the little teeny, um, they were the, like mini books and they were all about Peter Rabbit and I cherish those. I still have them. Um, they're, they're extremely old to the wear. They've been sort of passed down. Um, but that is something that I always looked forward to, to being read to from and um, they're, they're incredible. Okay. Um, all right. Excellent. Peter Rabbit. Uh, second random question. So there's, there's going to be, there's going to be a little bit of a literacy theme here to these questions. Okay. Right? Okay. All right. Fair. All right. Second, second random question. If, if you could be a character Ooh. in any book or story, who would it be and why? Ooh. Hmm. That is a really great one. Oh my goodness. Uh, part of me wants to go with like something nonfiction because, <laughs> um, you it. know, it's, uh, I, I read as you uh, probably can guess, um, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of, of running inspired books. And so, um, certainly, uh, I, I wouldn't mind being in Dina Castor's shoes. So, uh, uh, I really enjoyed her book and, you know, learning about her journey as a runner and as a, a woman in the sport. And, uh, you know, if I, if I had to go with someone, you can't beat it. So. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. And great connection to the sport of running as well. Excellent. Excellent. Literacy running. <laughs> I love it. Uh, all right. Last, last random question. Um, and so this isn't, this is not technically a literacy question, but I'm going to put a literacy spin on it. All right. Ooh. So, okay. so, um, so books afford us the opportunity to time travel, mm. right. To, to, mm -hmm. I mean, books give us a glimpse into our past and we have the opportunity to, to read, to read stories and accounts of things that have happened in the past. Books mm -hmm. also give us and provide us the opportunity with, with looking into the future. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and authors who have these incredible imaginations about what the future is about. Right. So, so books really sort of afford us the opportunity to time travel really, you know, in a way. Um, here's my question to you though. If you could spend three seconds in the future or three hours in the past, when, where, and why? Three seconds in the future yeah. or three hours in the past? And by the way, it can be it can be as far back. It can be beyond your past. I mean, you can you can go back to the Stone Ages if, if you want to. There's no limit <laughs> in, terms of, in terms of time travel and imagination, right? So, um, so what would it be? Um, where where are you going? You going you going three seconds in the future, or are you going to spend three hours in the past? When, where, and why? Wow! Oh my goodness! Um, well, I don't know. I feel like. I feel like I wouldn't want to to spoil, um, you know, what what would happen in the future, so to speak. And I I sort of believe that um, we're very much the creators of our future, and so uh, I wouldn't necessarily want to open that door. But um, you know, I think the past is really intriguing, and I think uh, there. Oh my gosh, to to choose three hours in all of history is. Um, <laughs> Oof. Yeah, I, I I get it. It's a tough question. But it's a monumental but, task. It's like how do you but, how do you but, start hey, to, but look, Bethany, to chip I mean, away at this? 
this is the perfect question for a pageant contestant because really you, you may be asked the question, right? And so you, know, you can't you can't give them a non-answer. You can't, right? Or maybe, oh, gosh. Or, or maybe yeah, your no, non-answer, they... or maybe your non-answer is an answer. So so this is actually ah. good. This is good pageant prep. All right. So I, I I'll, it really I'll stop is talking. good pageant prep. I will laugh talking. if if you know if that I get that question because they hear this podcast. Um, <laughs> but um, let's see. Oh gosh, you know, I mean, there's just, as I'm thinking about it, just to kind of give you like, I'm very big into the think alouds part of teaching. And so like, I'm sort of thinking like, you know, for me, um, you know, there's so many moments in, in my own personal history that I would love to dig deeper into and, you know, know more about. Um, but then there's so many significant moments in our history and just, you know, different things that have happened and that make me curious. And, um, so I think I'm going to go with the personal side. Um, I think I'm going to say, um, so I was fortunate enough, um, to know my great grandmother, um, on both of my parents' sides. Um, my great grandmother on my mom's side, uh, lived to be 98, um, and, when I knew her, um, she was unfortunately um, really going through um, dementia, um, probably a little bit of Alzheimer's in there as well. And so um, I didn't really get to know the woman that, um, you know, really started the family. Uh, she had 11 children um, and they all went on and had um, very big families. My, my mom has, um, you know, three siblings and, and we had this giant family reunion. I remember um, as a kid that was so large, we had to rent a field and a hall and we had to color code the families with t-shirts to be able to tell what your connection was to we called her Big Mame, uh, which was slightly ironic because she was about 410. Um, but I would love to go back, you know, and spend three hours with her and, um, you know, learn her story and learn uh, who she was at my age uh, and and what made her you know, what motivated her, what, um, what helped her to, to build the family she did, because I think that understanding who we are and where we come from is so important. And, um, it's such a, a part of our foundation. And, you know, I know that because of her and, and, you know, my grandparents and my parents, um, I'm, I'm able to sit here today and, uh, have had the opportunities that I have. And so, um, I'd love to, to, see what she thinks too about you know what i've done in 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 my own life and and so forth and so i think that'd be really fun what a great opportunity that would be for sure um well bethany thank you so much for joining me i've, I've really enjoyed the conversation thank you so much um this was such a, an amazing opportunity and um you know, I've definitely been um, been telling everyone here in Maryland that they they need to get a hold of you because uh, you know you you take uh, not only the physical side of training to the next level, but the mental side too. So thank you. Thank you very much. Bethany is such an amazing person. You know, if that conversation doesn't knock down some long-held stereotypes of pageants nothing will. Her focus on using literacy to lift up her community is not only impactful, but it's also incredibly inspiring. It's a great lesson that you don't need to be big and powerful to change the world. 
You just need to use your gifts and talents to meet a need. Sometimes just one need at a time. Once again, you've been listening to the Eat Half Walk Double Podcast. If you're listening on Spotify and enjoyed what you heard, please circle back to the homepage and click the follow button in the upper left-hand corner. And of course, if you really enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your friends. I'll be posting some supporting media on my Twitter account at Coach Chris J. Dunn, so make sure to check that out. And lastly, remember, the secret to living well and longer is to eat half, walk double, laugh triple, and love without measure. Until next time.